Welcome to the Section Cut Podcast. I'm Dan Weissman. And I'm Lauren Shirley. We're super excited to bring you an interview with Mark Pasnick and Chris Grimley of Over Under slash Pink Comma Gallery, located in the sunny south end of Boston. If you're not familiar with Over Under, this group is a really unique collaborative practice. They have their hands in everything. Not only do they create architecture, but they're involved in the Boston Society of Architects, promoting work with local architects and artists. They teach at several local institutions, produce exhibitions for their own gallery, Pink Comma, and most notably, at this moment, they have a new book out. So they really have this dream practice, right? Academic engagement, social engagement, promoting artistic work, civic engagement, and they make buildings. Man, isn't that the kind of practice we all dream of participating in? We talk about all of that and more in today's conversation. It's a good one. Stay tuned. My name is Chris Grimley. I'm a recovering architect. This is Mark Pasnick. He's an architect. (laughs) My name is Mark Pasnick. I'm an architect and educator. For the uninitiated, can you explain where we are? We are in offices of Over Under in the south end of Boston, which is in a half-submerged basement. We've moved about five years ago from a true basement into a half-basement, so we're moving on up. Um, It is also the location of our gallery, Pinkama. Uh, and Over Under is a practice that does architecture design, urban design, graphic design, lots of different types of design in one place. How did you guys meet? The original partners all worked together at a large international firm, Machado and Savetti Associates, where we were there. I was there for 10 years. You were there for six. six. And a half. Yeah. Uh, Rami was similar. And all three of us were associates there. Was it uh, love at first sight? It was, yeah. Not really. Mark ignored me for (laughs) the first year while I was there. Uh, We worked together on a competition for the office for the Motown Center, first with a kind of marketing proposal to get into the competition. It was an invited competition, and then the competition itself. And we also did a few things on the side. We did a, a little competition ourselves independently. We kind of realized we liked working together, and sometimes we felt like we could do things independently better than we could in the structure of an existing office. Uh, well, we, re- we realized that a lot of the marketing material that we were putting out could actually be used to generate income for us. Or it became a more exciting proposition once we realized that the work that we were doing internally could be used more effectively as an external source, both okay, so you were culturally another, and another opportunity for, for income, another a little bit business opportunity. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, and I think mostly for independence to be able to set our own agendas and set our own directions using the kinds of thinking that we developed while we were there. So we, I think all of us were kind of put on different kinds of projects. We all did things ranging from marketing to competitions to actual buildings. So for us, that diversity of work was really interesting, and we thought independently we'd like to pursue that. So that's when we uh, slowly, I was the first one to leave, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I left for a teaching post in California, and then... Chris, you left next. I don't remember yeah. the exact sequence, but I think Chris left next. And he had a teaching post in Northeastern, which was three quarters time teaching post. So he was one quarter over under three quarters there. And then Rami eventually left too. And he had a teaching post at Carnegie Mellon. So we kind of fashioned the office with all of us sort of slipping out slowly over time and also with support of other activities that allowed us to establish the office. Okay. So, did, so over under was created as an entity before you left? 
No, not technically. Not really, legally. Yeah, not legally. But we worked together before. On we had some external collaborations that we did while we were working at Machado and Svetti, and then in 2006 we actually formed it. I think I left in 2004. Was teaching for a little while abroad, where we did some competitions, and then we officially became a real office with a real space with a license and all that kind of stuff with the city in 2006. I think a lot of people at my age are thinking about breaking out and mm-hmm. you know, going out on their own, and it seems a very scary prospect. <laughs> um, was there a moment for you guys when you felt like you had the confidence? I mean, was there a, a turning point to, to you where you felt, okay, I can do this now, I can get out there? Or were you just always intending to do it? There's never a good time to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, in life. And so the confidence thing, I think, is just a matter of whether or not you're willing to jump off that cliff. It's one of those issues with architectural education where you're always kind of primed to be the author of your own stuff. And so I think most architecture students or architects in general always desire to have their own practice. The realities of having your own practice are, are markedly different than the initial, oh, I want to do this on my own or with other people. Mm-hmm. From a financial perspective, I would say having the reliability of teaching income uh, enabled us to set up the practice. I don't think we could have jumped ship without that sort of reliable work. And so, for instance, our first project was relatively small one of the rewards of it was we all got to go to Egypt together. Uh, there wasn't a lot of fee, though, uh, but what fee we did have, we were able to use for overhead and things because we already had other income sources. A lot of companies start with seed money. You know, that's the way entrepreneurial companies start, but architects generally don't have seed money. Uh, for us, the academic connections were the kind of seed that allowed us to set up the practice and slowly grow. And while we had multiple partners, we uh, stepped into roles, growing roles over time. So Chris really has become now completely full-time. He teaches occasionally, whereas Rami and I still have teaching posts. So we're sort of part-time teaching, part-time office. So last night, I think Tom introduced you guys as, or you at least, as a neo-Renaissance man. Uh-huh. <laughs> is, that, is that a term that you guys identify with or is set it, out to be? It sounds a little overly grand to me. Um, I would say, you know, introductions to lectures are always very generous. And um, I think we certainly have a little more modest attitude. My sixth grade typing teacher told me that an educated person is one who knows a little bit about everything and a lot about one thing. And maybe that's a, a more the model of what we are than Renaissance people. I think we like to connect to a number of different types of work, but each of us has an area of expertise that we bring so that, for instance, you know, Chris really has a deep understanding of graphic design, typography, all that kind of stuff. And I get to play in that world because Chris has that depth of knowledge. So in many respects, I think the complementary interests of us as a team and also the partners we work with allow us to cross disciplines and to do a bunch of different things. But we do so with also the benefit of some deep expertise on the larger team. So I think in a way that's different from, you know, this kind of heroic, to use a term that we use often, a heroic Renaissance person who, you know, is brilliant at everything. I I think we're more realistic about it and more modest maybe about wanting to engage in a lot of different things, but to do it in a, a smart fashion, not to assume that we can do everything. I mean, I think that's not really true, but we can contribute to a lot of different things in, in smart ways. Well, it seems like the, the Renaissance man 
mantra sort of suggests the singularity. Like yeah. The one, the one brilliant exactly. figure versus a collaborative The team. genius figure, basically. Exactly. Um, and I don't think we're geniuses. <laughs> but collectively. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. There is a kind of collective mind that I, I think can do a lot more than the individual mind. Right. And that, that, to me, I think is much more interesting as a model for thinking about how to behave in the world than saying, you know, there's the genius figure who does everything and who really, you know, solves every problem. That just doesn't really happen. Right. So when you, when you choose partners or when you hire people, are you looking for people who are going to challenge you and, and bring other skills? Or do you look for other renaissance and type? Uh-huh. Who, are, who want to do a lot of different things. Well, a lot of our hires, have, a lot of people Students. that we work with, and we would call them colleagues, not employees. You know, we like that word better. I, I think maybe it gets back to your your first question still, which is that, you know, this idea of the singular genius just doesn't make sense today. And I don't think it's a way to proceed. And so for us, people that we work with, we want them to be nimble and adaptable to many different things, but carry their own interest areas. So we've been having a lot of discussions lately in the office about the future of the office, where we want to go, and the collaborators that we have, we want to have input into that. You know, what areas of interest do they have? What portions of the practice do they want to be in charge of, or do they want to sort of grow around? At the same time that we'd like them to be nimble enough to kind of move across the different parts of the practice, because there are, you know, so for instance, Brett right now is working on an exhibition. He's worked on graphic stuff. He has a real interest in industrial design, We'd like him to be able to move around uh, in different areas of the practice, but sort of focusing more often. Sometimes he contributes to architecture or urban projects, but he tends to focus more on the graphic side of things and the exhibition side of things. So I think that happens in the way we hire people. There are different areas of our practice that certain people sort of are drawn to, but that we also expect that they can move across disciplines like all of us do. And then at the bigger scale, I think we're unusual in maybe being a relatively small practice, but collaborating a lot with other firms and also having what I would call a constellation of people around us. So somebody like Michael Kubo, who's folded into our practice in a lot of different ways. He's a PhD student at MIT. Um, He's been involved in all of our research projects, the exhibition we're doing in Pittsburgh right now, uh, in a lot of different ways, even with architecture as a kind of advisor. But he's not a traditional employee of the office. He's a kind of collaborator. And Rami's wife, right. Kelly Hutzel, is another person who's in that same kind of thing. So we draw in interesting collaborators in a lot of different ways. So I want to hear from you guys about how research fits into your practice, supports it, or whether the practice is supporting the research, or what's the relationship? It depends on how you, what, what, you, what you call research, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, what do you call research? I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's like the explicit, you know re- there, there, there's explicit research, which is you know, research for things like Heroic or Pittsburgh or any of the other exhibits that, that we've done. There is research that goes into the work that we're doing in various parts of the world, whether it's the Middle East or Central America or even here. That research tends to follow the more traditional architectural studio model, but a little more intensely where we're looking at precedent. We're looking at strains of intent that have happened over the emergence of a city. The first part of research, the the archival, the historical, the political, um, that has really been where we have, have focused most of our energy, whether it's the heroic project, Rami and Kelly's book on Doha called uh, Scenes and Speculations, or you know now this larger exhibit in Pittsburgh. And I, I think 
all of the other run-up shows or the run-up exhibits that we've done to both Heroic and, and Pittsburgh have sort of built a body of work that now people feel comfortable giving us a bit of money to do. So research has been funded and it tends to be, I would say, when we run the numbers on any of the exhibits we've done in the past, they are losing propositions financially if you conceived of them like an architecture office with billable hours and that sort of stuff. But they usually support themselves to an extent that we can do them without essentially losing money, but we're not you know, profiting off of them in general. So they've been a part of the practice that's also aided in the other side because they give us a kind of depth of knowledge and skill set that I think has helped us with some of the architectural and urban work. So for instance, in the study for the central business district in Abu Dhabi, the same kind of skills that we might apply in an exhibit were applied to the research for the documentation that we made for the guidelines. And essentially, so doing things like case studies and other city examples and really looking at best practices and all that kind of stuff came from the same kind of mechanisms. I think most architects do that sort of work, but I feel like ours is maybe at a PhD level versus others that might be at a more master's level of analysis and thinking in terms of the research that we produce behind and in support of documentation. And then at the architectural level, I think all of our projects, we want them to be informed by the place and by the culture in which the project exists. And because that's actually what makes our practice really interesting. We've done work in Central America and we've done work in the Middle East and in other contexts. And it is those contexts that we want to engage with. The difference is we're a little bit wary of the kinds of practices that reproduce that sort of context. Our goal is to engage with it uh, in a lot of different ways. So very much in the Middle East, we've looked at a lot of traditions, many of which have included the modern tradition there too. So some of our work there picks up on tropes and ideas that the modern Arab city has in it versus just, you know, going back to 1500s or something and looking at old mosques, which we do too. But I think we're interested in history and culture as context, which inform architecture and urban design. And that's what, again, makes the work more varied and more interesting for us. So that side is informed by what I would call the research arm, although they're basically the same arm. You know, it's the same people passing from project to project, we're all working on different aspects of the office. We're not stodgy historians. We're not historians at all. Although Michael, who, who I mentioned, is certainly a historian um, and he brings those credentials. We like to engage with history, but we also like to study it in terms of its relevance to today and some of the questions that it prompts us today. I think one of the major learning lessons for us about the Heroic Project is the value of public investment in cities that's been completely lost today. And we're today dependent entirely on the private market to create the kinds of public spaces that we want. Whereas in the 1960s, public spaces were funded by federal funds and by all sorts of initiatives. Uh, and so for us, looking at that history can help us understand what the problems are today as well and what we, how we need to combat them and how they might be taken on differently today. Well, what seems interesting also is that to go back to your practice as an architecture firm, that a lot of young firms get their start in single-family homes and small residential buildings, and you guys are using the research as a platform to actually jump directly into the large civic realm. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. how... Like, how do you mediate that that jump and how to break into the Boston market? <laughs> That's the big question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you do these, like, the, the civic projects you're studying are great in Boston, or maybe not, but uh -huh. 
you're having to go halfway across the world in order to execute. <laughs> exactly. We should just tell your listeners if they have a beautiful house project, we'd be we'd happy do. to do it. <laughs> um, I think uh, Boston is a unique case in that young firms can't start out by doing single family houses, right? I mean, the kind of houses that exist here, the things that people like here are of a very particular style. And what we're taught in schools is not that. Like in LA or in Toronto or in Vancouver, like all, all these places that I, I have worked and love, it's, it's much easier to be modern. And, and Boston presents a, a problem that way. So f for us, that kind of traditional model of, of starting with the, the single family home wasn't really available. And so we had to find something else. Larger urban stuff halfway around the world is where it landed, really. And, you know, trying to bring it back or trying to come back and, and bring it to Boston is, is, has been... A, That's been the bigger a, challenge. The bigger challenge, say. yeah. In many respects, you know, like many firms, typically you cut your teeth in a, another office before you start your work. And in those offices, we worked on larger projects and institutional projects. So Machado and Svetti did a lot of urban design and it did a lot of institutional buildings, museums and cultural centers and that kind of stuff. So our, our clearest experience is in that kind of realm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to work abroad where there's more acceptance, I would say, for emerging practices, uh, developing work. Although we also had to team smartly. I think with our first projects internationally, we brought in collaborators at UTL to form a team and then pursue the work. We had the links to the client, but we realized that alone, you know, we didn't have any projects to demonstrate on our own that we could do it. So we brought in partners and that, you know, that's continued to develop. I think that's the way forward here in Boston as well. We're, you know, trying to team more often uh, with smart players locally who can take advantage of our strengths and we can take advantage of their strengths. I think I would like to see that happen more often in Boston. It's been something that I've been pushing, not just for us, but for the community in general. I think lately Boston has really suffered from a very small number of firms doing a very large majority of the work. And we end up with the seaport as the character of the city. And my thinking is that those big firms would benefit quite a lot from teaming more often with smaller, more innovative offices that could deliver design excellence in conjunction with bigger partners in that. But it also, I mean, it goes back to that issue that Mark was talking about earlier with the investment in the civic realm. And it, those firms are getting like 2% fee for the buildings that they're designing. Right. And a small, like... It's, it's the Walmartization. Well, of it's also because the building's exterior volume is basically being designed by the lawyers and the yeah, partners, yeah. not by the architects. Basically, yeah. like you just stamp your facade on it and yeah. call it architecture. Yeah. Yeah. When you have that high volume that they're doing, like you don't need you don't need so much overhead or, or thinking. Well, there's repetition, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, repeti it's smart. It's a smart business, right? It's a smart business model. You do a lot of it. You have a detailed library that people can draw from, and it's you it's know. Not, you need to market for it because they just right. It's not good civic policy. In your Arc Daily interview a couple mm -hmm. months back, someone asked you about why 
Boston. Why did you focus your book on Boston? And you gave us several very clear reasons about why, and it had all to do with the content that you were talking about. But you didn't mention that you lived there, <laughs> or that you were personally invested at all. So uh -huh. I kind of wanted to hear that part of the answer. I'm just assuming that is part of the answer. Why, why as a practice, do you feel tied to Boston? And I don't know, maybe you can speak to a little bit of this like, local obsession with these buildings. Uh -huh. um, well, we all have we all have different stories about it. You know, I'm not from here and found myself here in 1999 and stayed. Wasn't expecting to stay. I grew up in Toronto. And in some ways, there, there are many parallels between the two cities. I think they both had to reinvent themselves in, in that particular era. And they, they did it in remarkably similar ways. And yet Toronto has, because it's the sort of cultural capital of Canada, although people outside Toronto would say it's not, it had, it had bigger ambitions and, and bigger scales. And so it grew quicker. Um, it grew much quicker uh, to the point now where it is pretty much a mess because there isn't any hardcore planning authority in, in Toronto. Like things just go up. I grew up around beautiful concrete buildings. Uh, the CN Tower, the largest single standing building in the world for many years, was a, one continuous pour of concrete. Toronto City Hall, Ville Revelle, remarkably modern city hall. Uh, very similar plaza condition to Boston, but no one says that it's a horrible place to be or uh, ugliest place in America or the world. It's an open space. It has a water feature, which uh, Mayor Mignot concreted over um, during his tenure as mayor. Uh, and it is a very active place. It's programmed well. It's the site of celebration. It's the site of protest. It has a lot of qualities similar qualities to what Boston City Hall Plaza does, um, and yet Boston City Hall Plaza is derided as bleak and oppressive and whatever other adjectives you want to use. So I come here, start seeing this stuff, and then I, you know, in, in the 15, 16 years I've lived here, I've, I've seen a, re a remarkable shift in the culture of the city. Boston kind of woke up to its culture during the time that I've lived here. It's been so satisfying to see things like the ICA projects is in current parlance, a tentpole moment in, in the, um, I don't know how tentpole became, you hear it everywhere now. It's like, there's all these tentpoles everywhere. But you know, the, the, the building of the ICA is this real moment where there's a shift in the culture of Boston as something more contemporary architecturally and more contemporary artistically. So to bring it back to this Toronto comparison, I think Boston is at this moment where there, there is going to be this huge explosion of culture here uh, and potential for really great things to happen. So in terms of the book project itself and why Concrete in Boston, you know, it certainly is shaped by the fact that we're here. Um, I do think that that would be part of the answer. We're here and so we're invested in the place and we wanted to understand this tradition when the mayor talked about tearing down City Hall, when Menino talked about tearing down City Hall. We worked with a group of people and it was our very first exhibit in the gallery was on Boston City Hall and possibilities for its transformation with a bunch of other young firms that we put together some proposals. So that was our first investment and the gallery was set up to be focused on Boston. So it was a kind of natural outgrowth of us being here that we would focus on a research topic with Boston. But in the end, we also talked about doing a book on concrete architecture nationally or locally. And we determined that Boston has the most important collection of concrete buildings of any American city. 
And that by studying Boston in depth, we could actually do a much better job of communicating the issues, the challenges, all the possibilities that exist in this discussion than we would if we did a shallower version of a national book where we picked a bunch of icons from around the country and, and produced a book. So we really wanted a deeper and more invested book. And Boston, in that regard, is, we think, the best case study for this. It was a huge amount of urban transformation that was going on. There was a, a real economic rebooting of the city. Um, there was a whole political series of stories behind this architecture. And then there's architecture with some of the world's best architects producing it. The only building by Le Corbusier in North America, many works by some of the seminal figures of modernism, you know, the involvement of Gropius and Jose Luis Sert uh, and Ian Pei's office and all of his collaborators. So in a lot of respects, we felt, yes, it's convenient that we're here and we can get to photos and draw the buildings very easily, but we also thought it's the best story to really communicate the presence of concrete modernism in America. Yeah, this is where it's happening. This is where it happens. I would also say the reverse story about Boston. It's Boston's, what I would call one of its two most influential moments in architecture of Boston's history. The first I would say is Richardson's presence. You know, Richardsonian Romanesque goes around the world, influences the whole world. And the second is the concrete modernist period where it has enormous influence. There are issues of magazines dedicated to what Boston's doing. It's looked to for its leadership in architecture and planning. And something like Boston City Hall is replicated around the world as well. You know, even though it it has origins in other work and Le Corbusier ideals, I think it becomes a singular thing. We have some great images of projects in Istanbul and uh, Baghdad that are essentially replaying the language of Boston City Hall for civic structures in their communities. to these locales in the Middle East and, and like hot and humid or hot and dry climates. Uh -huh. And it seems clear that the buildings take a lot from uh, climatic and certainly daylighting research that came out of the 1950s. And yet they're not, they don't seem to be very well suited to our climate at the end of the day. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that issue. And Yeah, I think they were influenced by Le Corbusier's ideas very boldly, which, you know, must grow out of some focused research as well that I'm not I'm not an expert on by any means. But you know, Le Corbusier set up this sort of romanticized notion of sunblocks and other tools that would become expressions, you know, rooted in some of the work he was doing in Northern Africa and in India, although also present in the south of France, you know, in one of his first major concrete projects or a series of projects, things like the Unité uh, has sun baffles and things like that as part of its language. So maybe the Southern Mediterranean, I don't know if it's actually appropriate there either, but it's more appropriate there than it might be in London. And I think, you know, that same language got translated through the lens of London and through places like Boston to be used as a language uh, without necessarily reconnecting it to the principles of the climate. So I think in a lot of respects, there are questions that arise in a lot of these works of whether they handle daylighting well, whether the sun blocking systems are useful or actually detrimental to the energy status of the building. So, I, you know, I think that's one of the complexities of these buildings. Paul Rudolph came at it from a different angle where he had worked in Florida for decades using a kind of international style. 
and with a focused interest on climate and sun shading as a major element of that. And, you know, I think you see the presence of that in his later work, but in a more monumental historical form. Uh, and again, I don't, I'm not an expert enough. You could probably tell us better whether they are performing the way they should. I think his, his model of it was less about applying the brisolet as a kind of element uh, and more about studying its relationship to light and the control of light. So I think that might be an instance where the model is, is perhaps better. But I think all these architects were partly attracted to it because it made buildings with a kind of heavy substance. Maybe more they were attracted to it for its sculptural ability to create shadow on surfaces than they were to it for its performance, building performance characteristics or for maybe intelligent versions of its building performance characteristics. So I'd say in a lot of ways, it's used as a way to animate and make robust and lively and deep buildings. One of our arguments about these buildings is that although the public generally says they, they look like they're you know, alien ships that have been stuck down in these cities, I actually think they're far more consistent with a masonry city's history because they're thick and heavy and they're monumental and they cast deep shadows than a lot of the veneer architecture that we do today. In fact, they're quite closely connected to things like the older granite warehouse buildings and that sort of thing. That's what the architects were thinking at the time too. So I think that depth that comes out of the sun shading strategies was really something that is appropriate but may not be on an energy level. And if you go into some of these buildings, I mean, sometimes they're too dark or, right. they're, you know, or there's glare issues or other kinds of things. They're often very dramatic in their interior spaces. And it's a little bit sad to me that people don't seem to care for drama. They want like generic office lighting. You know, they'll be glad to walk into a cathedral that has that character. But when they walk into a city hall that has that character, they think it's ridiculous. And to me, a lot of these architects were trying to get away from the tedium of mid-century glass and steel corporate architecture that was the same everywhere in the world. They were looking for emotional experience, especially Paul Rudolph. He talks a lot about the emotion of going through buildings. And those buildings are certainly emotional to walk through. Mm -hmm. They're not generic in any way. And we seem to have trouble dealing with that. I mean, I, I guess it's sometimes hard to work in an overly idiosyncratic space. But certainly I think a lobby like the South Lobby in City Hall is a great place to have idiosyncrasy and drama and a kind of spirit in the space that exists there. And part of that is, is because of the lighting. You know, the natural light is very evocative. It's not very good to work in, but it's very evocative in ways that I don't think happens very often in other kinds of buildings from earlier periods. Yeah, it seems like one of the major challenges with repurposing this, these buildings is that they're not as flexible, both with the lighting and with the, mm -hmm. with the concrete structure. But and, and yet we're back to the steel and curtain wall, steel and glass corporate buildings. And look at how boring it is. But, yeah, <laughs> but that, the problem is that the fundamental logics of those buildings are different and they're coming out of maximizing floor area ratios yeah, and, yeah. and selling that as, as leasable space as opposed to yeah. a civic beacon that's trying to be like a cathedral and inspire people. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's something that's a really interesting sort of thread of your guys' work. It's like trying to sort of bring back that, that mystical quality of yeah, architecture. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, we, we use the term heroic 
because it has both positive and negative connotations. Uh, the positive connotation comes from the origins and modernists who are looking back at the, what they call the heroic period of modern architecture. The Smithsons wrote a book with that title, and they were looking at inspiring architects to return to that kind of vision and kind of excitement of the early modernist period. The Venturi Scott Brown used it as a negative, as a pejorative term, and we see heroic as a kind of combined belief system. A hero always has a flaws. Flaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we would admit, we'd be the first to admit that these buildings are troubled, mm-hmm. uh, that they face challenges. And our solution is that architects should think about them creatively by understanding what they are, what their possibilities are, and then transforming them. I think a lot of the public just wants to tear them down because they think they're ugly. And I just think that's a I'll say it, it's a stupid strategy, right? It's unsustainable. It's a very bad decision to just say, because I don't like a building, let's tear it down. That's really um, not a very thoughtful way to proceed. So we are not saying that every one of these buildings needs to be preserved or is worth saving, uh, but we are saying we should take a more intelligent attitude about how we evaluate them over time. It's like a Greek tragedy and yes. hubris of... Hubris is, hubris is a word that Michael McKinnell brought up in his interview that we did with him that that was part of maybe the fatal flaw of that time is they had a sense that they could save the world. Sure. They were trying to save the world, Absolutely. though, and I think most people think that they were trying to control the public. Yeah, so, it some, was more of a blind optimism. Than, yeah, than and there's some completely control. wrong yeah. misreading of it now that it's Stalinist and that it's like authoritative. In fact, it was really meant to be democratic and allowing society to aspire through monumental architecture. There's a desire to see the civic realm as having a monumental characteristic. Well, I think people associated like Ayn Rand and like the fountainhead yeah. personality with these buildings because they happen to like coincide with them. <laughs> but in fact, like they're completely different. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because they're the only, they somehow manage to be attacked from both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. The right thinks that they represent too big government, you know, and so after Reagan, we want to get away from that. The left thinks they represent authoritative government, and so we want to get away from that. They're sort of strangely beat on by both sides. (laughs) They're uh, just objects. I know. (laughs) And they were actually, they had good intentions. That's what we want to draw attention to, is that they had very positive intentions, and that they're phenomenal works and provocative works of ideas that I think people should be more amenable to, even if you don't like it, you have to respect what they are. They're pretty interesting things. Well, it's more about sort of reframing the lens yeah, as opposed to like trying to beat it in people that it's like, yeah. you should like this. Uh-huh. But you know, it's, it's, I mean, the Rand, the Rand thing is interesting. I hadn't thought of that connection before. And it's, you know, a lot of people's exposure to a lot of the public's exposure to architecture is through the Fountainhead, right? Mm-hmm. It's either Frank, you get a Frank Lloyd Wright that book or you read the Fountainhead. Right. Right? Frank Lloyd calendar. Yeah. Calendar. Yeah, the calendar. Um, <laughs> you think of the prima donna, and that's exactly what we don't want to be as a right. practice. But, you know, I would say that the buildings now all reflect the Atlas Shrugged mentality of the neoliberal economy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. These are records of, uh, you know, a civic time before neoliberalism where public investment was a big part yeah. of the American city, of the sha- of the saving of the American city, right. I should say. Yeah, there was a lot of public investment. Really a desire to see 
government as a positive force. The late 60s sort of changed that attitude. Of course, the Vietnam War made the left retreat from government it's, and then the right retreated from government. Is, it's, I, I, one reading of it might be that like the people who were in power in the 1960s were the people who were growing up during the Great Depression and the WPA projects and mm-hmm. saw the positive outcomes of mm-hmm. FDR. Yeah. But the, the, the new narrative, which I find just so curious, is the government came in and decided that the United States needed a highway system. It was funded so that transportation was easier, that goods and services could move around the country more freely, and it would connect people to each other. The new spin on that narrative is it facilitated urban flight, which then facilitated the government stepping in and raising neighborhoods. You can't have a country that's just that's broad acre city, right? I mean, you can't. You need urban spaces and you need urban populations. But this kind of reshifting of this narrative of the highway project having detrimental impact on the country at large is just so curious to me. Yeah. How many projects, how many huge projects like that that were just like, government, we're doing this, we have this need, we're going to do it. How many of those, have, you know, 50 years later, do we turn around and say, still a great idea? I mean, it feels like any time a project like that happens, we inevitably regret it for certain reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for like Central Park, the only <laughs> universally loved designed thing in the world. It, and yet that, that displaced hundreds of uh, poor black families. True. Yeah. things that I think is a big challenge for a lot of architecture firms when they conduct research um, is the communication part of it, is the reproducing it and then communicating it out Mm. to a larger audience. And I think it's great that your practice is actually set up to do that specifically. Mm -hmm. Like you're not only doing the research, but you're you're upholding high standards for getting the word out there. So... (laughs) So I think that's very true. That's where well, we... Well, thank you. Thank you. I, 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 no, that's, I, I like to think that we can provide both the content and the kind of format for something. So Heroic was a book where we did all the research, we did everything, and we also designed it. I mean, Chris really designed it. So the book itself is a reflection of the way we might communicate visually as well as the kind of content research. And I think that's very true in... We've done more than 30 exhibitions, and many of them we've designed as well as done the content for. So the interface between digging up an archive, you know, and finding the right content, curating it, and then presenting it is something which is sort of seamless in our process. And that's actually, I think, a little bit more rare. I think a lot of places, you know, there's like a curator who might produce stuff and then hand it off to a designer who then designs it. We really do that. Uh, where the two relate to one another. Um, I think it has a lot of benefits. It maybe has some drawbacks too, but the image that the public consumes is also conceived in the same way that the research was done. So there's a kind of tying together of those things. I think the most clear example of that was probably the last biennial exhibition where we created what we called Archive. And it was essentially a way for us to present 57 projects or something like that as an archive rather than us being the 
maybe paternalistic curators who say, okay, well, here's the seven things you need to see. We instead created a very, very complex and rich archive of, of research that people could go to these, what was essentially like a card catalog of panels. They could find a project and then that would link them to a drawer where there was more information. So it was, in essence, we sort of represented the research project that we would undergo in a visual and accessible way. And to some extent got out of the way as curators from people able to have multiple different kinds of experiences with the content, uh, you know, it became a database that people could access in many different ways rather than a more traditional designed and curated set of content that's very limited in its scope. Uh, MMA. So it's, it's, <laughs> we're against conventional curation. I don't know. We're not against anything probably that badly, but, uh, no, Rami, Rami has this thing that he's, he says he just is, we've gotten old enough that you just can't be against anything anymore. We're not against curation. Um, I think there's a lot of value in it and I do think we curate some of our shows in more traditional ways, but we like to in general explore, Chris has been always on the kick of exploring new formats with the way that we present content and really being creative in those formats. So sometimes it's something like a takeaway flyer. Sometimes there's a broadsheet that will indicate, you know, tell stories. Sometimes there's a digital interface. Sometimes there's something about the way the work is presented. So all of that is curation. It's just not, let's say, framing things and putting them on a wall as a type of curation. I, I, I think it is intentional it has the characteristics of what curation does but we're looking for new models of curation maybe well it seems like to a certain extent there's also an attempt at engaging the participants of the exhibit as in the people mm -hmm. who come to visit the exhibit engaging them in a more fundamental manner through either data collection or data dispersal mm -hmm. beyond the limits of the exhibition walls so like can you talk to how you guys have used that frame to set up these exhibitions we always like to say that we want our audiences to work at getting their knowledge. We, we don't like a passive version of things. Many of the biennial exhibits have been that way. We've removed names, we've made graphics that really require effort to understand. For us, it accomplishes two things. One, you need to slow down a little bit and really engage with an object or engage with content to get anything out of it. The other thing is slightly tongue-in-cheek way of criticizing the kind of pervasiveness of curation, right, or the pervasiveness of data. For instance, the role that infographics play in contemporary society right now is like all data is information, all information can be graphicized and is supposed to tell you something when, you know, most of the time it's just not. And so the biennial, the archive version of biennial the version of those data graphics were a critique of data graphics. They were just incomprehensible. Like they were necessary or they were intentionally incomprehensible. But if you spend enough time with them, you, you could figure out what was going on. They were on first glance incomprehensible. Yeah, intentionally. But they right? look beautiful, so they're at least enticing. Yes. Yeah. They're aesthetic and you know, they, they serve their function of, of being aesthetically pleasing. But to get at the data, you really needed to figure it out. Mm -hmm. You needed to yeah. play. 
Mm-hmm. Right. We don't always present difficult communication, but I, I do think that Chris is right that there's a sort of pervasiveness of making everything easy. Like you have the top 10 everything, and it's a curated list in a way that it dumbs down the content. They're called listicles. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah. I just read something about listicles. And they apparently have to be weird numbers. They have to be like 17. Right. That's what the time and is. number 26 will blow your mind. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So there's that what he kind did of, next. Um, yeah, there's that kind of the web is a format that attempts to draw you in almost like a, you know, like a circus tent would, you know, like the Click kind it. of, yeah. And also by dumbing down. And I think what galleries are good at are drawing people into space together and confronting them maybe with deeper issues. Although people in galleries don't tend to read a lot. They don't tend to, you know, it's still sort of some of the same problems of format, which is why we use other formats in galleries, things like broadsheets that people can take home and spend more time with. I think one of our goals is to make sure that if there's still a role for exhibitions it is in that they're different from other media types and that they offer other potentials. And I think one of them is provoking people more deliberately than they might be on the web to confront them with things that require them to actually activate their minds in order to gain knowledge rather than just passively absorbing, you know, thousands of little bits of data that may or may not add up to much. And so I think some of our strategies are meant to be commentaries on contemporary culture, but also ways of looking for the gallery to have a substantive role in a changing society. What are the challenges and synergies you've seen balancing your uh, office life with your academic life? So I think I've learned over time that it's helpful to create parallels between the two and to look for sympathies from one to the other. I I think it helps me be a better teacher that I'm a practitioner and um, the reverse is true as well. So the focuses of things that I've been doing in the last couple of years of my teaching have been very closely related to the research project, especially Heroic, and that there's been a parallel there. So a lot of the initial research we accomplished for the book uh, over the eight years that we've been working on it, a lot of the initial research came out of seminars that I ran where students, you know, did a lot of research on individual buildings. To begin with, we had more than 150 buildings. Now in the final version of the project, there's 23 sites and 30 buildings total. The dead tree version of the project, not the final version. I'm sorry? The dead tree version of the project. The book book version of the project. There will be a website coming up. But so... um, We will chain ourselves to City Hall. (laughs) Yes. At some point in our lives. (laughs) Um, So I've been teaching seminars and studios that are related to the heroic topic. And those, I think, have brought... Uh, richer understanding of the project to the students because it's a long-term thing and it's sort of involved in a lot of different ways. Right now, uh, my colleague Carol Burns and I are teaching, we've been teaching for the last year and a half, a studio on Paul Rudolph's Government Service Center. We've been working with DCAM, the owners of the building, on this project who have essentially, you know, are our co-sponsors of these studios because they want us to do a kind of invested research on the possibilities of transforming that site and that building. And they can gain a lot out of that uh, experience that we'll have with the students. So I think the more the relationships kind of flow back and forth, I think the better. There's always a bit of a, let's say, a conflict of interest issue that arises. You know, we can't obviously financially benefit from work that students are doing. And, you know, there's all sorts of divides that have to be maintained in 
in doing that, but I think having larger research aspirations that span from the office to the academic circle, for me, has been very helpful. It sort of framed what I do and how I engage in teaching. And then it gives a professional perspective to students um, that they might not have with somebody who doesn't practice. Oh no. What's your spirit? <laughs> We're both atheists. We don't believe in it. <laughs> no, sp- we have no, no spirit. spirit. <laughs> no. I would uh, say if I had any spirit animal now, um, I'd probably want to be a, like a cunning fox. But in reality, I think I'm a badger. I think I'm just nagging a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen Honey Badger. The Honey Badger YouTube thing. Yeah. Um, How about you, Chris? I've never thought of what my spirit animal, animal would be. I'm dressing up as a fairy for Halloween, so... Oh, you can be a fairy, yeah. yeah I can That's be a fairy. A good, is that an animal? That works, like yeah. An imaginary, 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 imaginary yeah, That was a unicorn up until recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, thank you both. Thank uh, you. Been wonderful. That was amazing, actually. I feel like that puts a lot of the work I've been doing here in Boston in perspective. Yeah, I mean, they they really have quite the breadth of experience at this point. It's it's interesting that they've jumped directly into this civic level of architecture. And After the interview was over, we ended up talking to Chris and Mark for another half an hour, 45 minutes, and I, I wish we'd recorded that too. These, these guys are just fascinating and so generous with their time. Thank you so much, Chris and Mark. Section Cut is a community of curators, designers, design educators, architects, landscape architects, urban designers, lighting designers, artists, and more, contributing to a growing collection of the most valuable resources and best design objects in existence. We write, we record, we publish content under the moniker Studio Culture, where we demystify the design process. If you have an idea for a how-to, a sage council, or some other story, Hover over your profile icon in the upper right corner of Section Cut's website and click Contribute. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's episode was produced by Michael Joy, Lauren Shirley, and myself, Dan Weissman. Section Cut's CEO is Robert Yuen. Our creative director is John Sturt. Kyle Sturgeon is our director of development. And Marilyn Modinger is our senior editor. Thanks again to Mark Pasnick and Chris Grimley of Over Under and Pink Comma Gallery. We really had a great time. And to everyone listening, zip over to sectioncut.com if you aren't already there and purchase yourself a copy of Heroic, a truly inspiring effort. Till next time, keep burning the midnight oil.